This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Saturday and the best of the gist, also the best of the week, depending on how you look at it. The best segment or interview this week, I don't know if it was the best, people liked it, maybe you missed it. It was on Tuesday. I talked to Moises Naim, who wrote The Revenge of Power. A lot of people have written similar books where they look at the uh, autocrats throughout the world that have recently risen up and they draw lines between them and they also document how these guys uh, gain sustenance and just tips and strategies from each other. But Naim is a former Venezuelan trade minister. He lived there. He saw Chavez come and do what he did. And then he began to notice this happening everywhere. So I bring you my interview. But the other interview, we go back to 2014. And this was a time not too dissimilar from our own because Putin had just invaded Ukraine. I talked with Ann Applebaum, who you might hear her making the rounds of inter interviews these days. She's the best. She's gimlet-eyed. She is the person who will say, please do not give Putin any sucker. Do not give Putin any credit. Do not blame us. This is what Putin wants, and he wants territorial expansion. She's absolutely right. If you want to listen to her, talk to Andrew Sullivan. It's a masterclass in, I'm sorry, maybe that's a clever premise, but it is wrong. This is what Putin is doing. Now, with on our show, she talked about the then invasion of Ukraine. And it's interesting just to listen back. We didn't know what would happen. And what did happen was a quasi-success where he, where he pulled back and kept his powder dry, gunpowder. Uh, that's actually what that phrase means. And so now I ask you to listen again. Keep in mind the question of, there's a question now, what if, what if Putin takes all of Ukraine and marches on to Poland, a NATO state? Uh, and addresses that to some extent from the 2014 perspective. And also there's the question of, you know, can, how good a poker player is he? When things go wrong, how does he react? You know, in the last eight years, the answer is, like I say, he bides his time and waits out his opponents. What might he do now? The only way to learn about the present is to investigate the past. So I bring you Moses Naim and Ann Applebaum. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
As of this taping, we don't know for sure who shot down Malaysian Air Flight 17 over Ukraine, but it seems likely to have been Russian-aligned rebels fighting in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin has not explicitly denied this, but he and Russian officials are pointing the finger at Ukraine for, in their framing of the situation, fomenting unrest, for punishing Russian separatists, and also for not shutting down airspace in a region where aircraft have been getting shot down. Well, joining me now is Anne Applebaum, columnist for The Washington Post and Slate. Her book, Gulag, a history, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 2004. Thanks for taking the time to join me, Anne. Thanks. Is Vladimir Putin in damage control right now? He's in damage control, but he's actually, more interestingly, at a very interesting turning point in his invasion of Ukraine. Up until now, he's been able to massage what he's doing to pretend that this isn't really an invasion, it's some kind of separatist movement, and so on. With the downing of this plane, a lot of things are about to become very clear. You know, it's about to become very clear who's running Donetsk, this, this region of eastern Ukraine uh, where the plane went down. It's about to be absolutely made clear to the world that it is Russians in charge, and not only that, it's Russian former KGB and former military intelligence officers who are in charge because they're the ones doing the speaking. It's about to become clear that the chaos that was created deliberately by the Russians and the denigration of the state and the delegitimization of the Ukrainian government were what allowed this to happen, and that that was a deliberate policy on the part of the Russians and has been for some months. Putin is about to be confronted with suddenly everybody realizes what his policy is in this area and just how dangerous it is. And he's going to have an interesting choice to make. So I'm trying to figure out what his play might be. Can he simply deny reality? Maybe the rest of the world will think that it's him, but he could just continue on with this fiction that it had nothing to do with forces he was supporting. And maybe the Russian public or enough people, enough rebels will buy that so it won't change the situation. He could. Um, you know, that's, what, that's the game they've been playing all along. Um, the, the Russians have been extraordinarily brazen about denying facts and yeah. about inventing alternate facts and alternate theories. Russian media has been full of some actually insane theories about why the plane came down. You know, it was a fighter jet from Ukraine that was trying to hit Putin's plane, and that's what happened. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff has been has already been used to, you know, create, cast a sense of, you know, we didn't really know what's happened. We're never really going to know. The truth will not come out. Um, that's already been cast into the story, particularly for the Russian audience. Um, so, yes, it may be possible for him to tough it out at home. It's going to be harder for him to continue to play that game abroad. Tangibly, that could lead to, what, tougher sanctions by the EU? What can really happen if this becomes a moment where the West stands up and says, we won't take this anymore? What I would like to have happen is for you know, the European community as a whole to recognize what Russia is and how dangerous it is to Europe. Because actually the danger that Russia poses is above all to Europe, to the European Union, to its institutions, um, to, you know, to its banking system, to its economy. Um, and to begin to reconstruct European policy in a way that protects Europe against Russia. And by that I mean, you know, the creation of a European energy union, for example, that makes it easier for Europe to bargain with Russia, the development of alternate sources of gas. Um, there's actually beginning to do that already, but, you know, deepening and speeding up that process. I know that Putin draws strength and prestige from such actions as uh, taking Crimea. But has eastern Ukraine been worth it for him? Eastern Ukraine has not gone the way that Putin expected it to go. 
he seems to have genuinely believed that he would be able to cause in eastern Ukraine a kind of popular uprising against the Kiev government. And he tried to foment such an uprising in several places, including Kharkov and Odessa and, and several other cities. This failed. The question is, has he drawn the conclusion from it? The conclusion that he should draw is that Ukraine is, in fact, a sovereign state, that Ukrainians feel themselves to be Ukrainian, that they remain loyal to Kiev, and they don't want to be part of Russia. Um, whether he has acknowledged that and understands what that means for him and for his policy, um, I don't know. It's certainly true that the invasion of eastern Ukraine has not been popular in Russia in the way that the invasion of Crimea was, not least because it's not working. I mean, it's not successful. I mean, the, the, the installation of a bunch of um, former security officers in Donetsk is not evidence of, um, is not a, some kind of great Russian triumph in Ukraine. So I guess my last question, we don't know. He's a strong man and digging in his heels seems part of his character. But maybe this is the incident that convinces him it's a failed strategy. Does he have a history with that? Is he a good enough poker player that he has shown that in cases he knows when to fold them? There is one case in which he didn't exactly fold but he did make some changes. And this was actually, this is a complicated, in the Russian relationship with Poland some years back, the Russians had made very aggressive statements about Polish history and, and the role of Poland in the war and so on. And there was a moment when Putin pulled back from that and from some of his, from some of his rhetoric. And he actually appeared at a Polish celebration of the start of the war in 1939, which sounds insignificant. But of course, for the Russians, the war didn't start in 1939. They were actually part of the division of Poland in 1939. And for them, the war starts in 1941 when the Germans invaded. But he did make this concession to the Polish memory of history and to the history of Europe a few years back, which gave a lot of people some hope that he was beginning to change his attitudes and his way of thinking, that he wasn't so Soviet. So he could, in theory, do that. It's also true, though, that since then, he's become much stiffer, much harsher, and also much more nervous of staying in power, and thus much less likely to admit mistakes or to change course. So the answer is he has changed like that in the past, whether he'll do it now, whether he even feels like he can do it now. In the hours since the plane crash happened, he has yet to give any indication that he's going to do that. On the contrary, he's been blaming Ukraine. He's been sticking to the script. So far, he hasn't budged. An Applebaum columnist for The Washington Post and Slate. Thank you so much. Thank you. In management, we're told the three Ps are people, process, and product. Okay, sounds good. In entrepreneurship, there's a famous book that says the three Ps are patience, persistence, and perseverance, which I don't like since persistence and perseverance are essentially synonyms. But Moises Naim has a different set of three Ps as he surveys the world and sees the rise of the autocrat. What explains this? Polarization, populism, and post-truth. Moises Naim is the author of the best-selling The End of Power, which we're going to get to. He was an editor-in-chief of foreign policy. He was Venezuela's trade minister, executive director of the World Bank. So what I'm saying is the man has credentials. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Mike. You, as a Venezuelan, got a glimpse of autocracy and the recent trend of the rise of autocracy. Uh, Chavez was an early indicator. Did you know it then, or were you just too worried about what your country was going through to look around and say, oh, I see nascent signs of this elsewhere? 
No, it was very interesting and unnerving to see what happened in the United States uh, because, you know, that's, uh, I, I kept saying, you know, I have seen this movie, except that it was in Spanish. Uh, but, you know, all of the, the tactics, the tricks, the strategies, the reactions, the, the demonization of the rivals, the enemies, the media, all of that. Uh, we, we saw um, uh, with Hugo Chavez. He, Hugo Chavez also was copying others, but there is a 21st century version of doing this, uh, this kind of strategy of populism, post-truth and polarization, the three Ps. Um, they're very old practices. It is not like, a, you know, populism has always existed and, and uh, you know, divide and conquer is also always part of the toolkit of uh, autocrats and others and, and, and propaganda and embellishing and lying and uh, is part also of the toolkit of many politicians. So there's not, nothing new in principle there until you start adjusting and, uh, uh, for the 21st century for the new realities uh, that, um, that are, we are witnessing. The empowering of individuals, uh, the, the uh, social media, of course, and the internet, uh, bloggers and, and podcasters and YouTubers and influencers, all of that uh, is, uh, is, has changed uh, the traditional ways in which these three Ps operated in politics. So let's take a f let's take them. And it did strike me that all of the P's at some point could be considered a virtue. They're all essentially virtues that have curdled. And if a listener is saying, well, how's polarization a virtue? Well, in in dictatorial or ancient societies where it was uh, top down and you weren't allowed to have political parties or you weren't allowed to disagree, then I suppose there was no polarization. And populism, of course, there's a good side to populism and we want to take into account the feelings of the masses. And while post-truth doesn't seem good, the idea of getting past certain gatekeepers and being skeptical of information, that is good. So that it does strike me that all of these uh, horrible pejorative um, attributes were once or could be considered, a version of them could be considered something that's positive for society. That's a very insightful observation. That's true. What I just said, that's true. And in my conversations about this, I keep saying that a, a lot of these things are like cholesterol. You know, there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Uh, in polarization, for example, um, you know, there is the... the the good uh, uh, polarization, which is what you described, these people with different ideas, interests that clash uh, uh, against each other. And then uh, they, a solution is found uh, through votes and elections and so on, or adjustments, alliances, all that. So uh, there is a democratic polarization that respects democracy and, respect, uh, and, and respects the right uh, of the rivals to exist and, 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 and takes it as legitimate to have that. So that's good cholesterol, that's good polarization, democratic polarization. But then there is the autocratic uh, polarization in which you deny uh, the, the right of others that don't think like you to exist, to occupy a political space, to be participants in the political process. Um, and that's the, the, the bad cholesterol, that's the bad polarization. And, and you can also say that with populism, uh, they, you know, there is a bad populism that essentially tricks people and promises uh, that creates a profound division in society and nurtures the, the, the divisions and the wedge. Uh, and so that's very, very, very bad because it, it ends up paralyzing the country. The country cannot make decisions, cannot think long term, cannot take tough decisions that have short term costs, all of that. Uh, 
But then there is also the, the positive uh, populism, which is a, a heightened sensitivity to the needs of those that have been excluded uh, and marginalized. Yeah. And so when you look at the personality of many of the autocrats in question, Duterte, Trump, uh, certainly Chavez and Maduro after them, Erdogan, they are of the type, the clever thug is what I think about them. They're not stupid, but they're not smart. They're not, they, they embrace ignorance and they make that work for them. Why does that personality trait work? Well, it's part of a larger personality trait uh, that is one in which they develop a relationship with their followers that uh, resembles more that of a fan with a sports club or uh, an artist. Uh, and, you know, even you derive your identity. Part of who you are is that you are a super fan of the Yankees or, or the Barca soccer club in, right. in Barcelona. So... There's always a link between the leader and the followers that is based on his charisma, his legitimacy, his effectiveness, and so on. You know, and that's politics, and that's always has existed. But now we have an addition to that, which you know, fandom is the politics of fandom, in which uh, these leaders develop a relationship uh, with the followers that goes beyond politics. And it has to do with identity. It has to do with um, self-image and all, all of that. And so many of these autocrats are showmen, but not always, right? I mean, could Putin be considered? He's he's not a showman. He's not going to do these long, well, he does long press conference, but he's not going to do, quote unquote, entertaining speeches in front of rallies like Trump did, like certainly Chavez loved to do. How does Putin fit in with that? No, as you say, I, I think your description is, is, is accurate. Uh, it also has to do with, you know, he's a very clear autocrat. Uh, he's not uh, uh, doing too much to hide the fact that he rules the country. Yet even him, with all, all, all the all-powerful Putin, has to go through contortions. And, you know, he calls elections mm -hmm. that he, you know, wins with a very large margin. Why does he do that? If everybody knows that the elections are a sham, they're tricked, that you know, he, no one is going to contest him in a significant way. So why go through the motions? And the answer is uh, legitimacy. They have to grasp any possibility, any, uh, even if it's minor and, and easily detectable as a fraud, uh, they need to have the legitimacy. Yeah. And, and I think the West mistook uh, democracy for liberal democracy or institutions. And if just if you have elections that, you know, in the minds of many got you two thirds of the way to democracy. And it's just not true. Let me give you an interesting factoid that I read. You know, I, I looked at the numbers. You know that democracy is in recession. There's a, a number of people living on, on a, under a democratic regime has declined. Democracies are not doing well in terms of appeal and all that. Yes, yet I counted, and we have now in uh, election boom. So uh, a democracy recession and elections everywhere all the time for president, head of state, governors, state and local office elections. You know, as we speak, I'm sure that there is an election going on for somewhere around the world. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that democracy is, is down, is in a recession, and elections are booming? Well, first, because those elections, most of them are shams, are, are tricks. They're not real elections. They're not fair and free. 
Uh, but also is that these, uh, the, the, the appeal, the demand for election uh, hinges in what I said before, is the need for legitimacy. So I want to get back to the idea of the clever thug, because in the book, you wrote, interestingly, about the tendency of these autocratic leaders to really denigrate the sophistication of some of the programs that they're in charge of. Like um, Chavez talked about going to a meeting of the state petrochemical company, which is the most important thing in Venezuela. And he talked about just falling asleep and how it was so boring. And people ate that up. And it reminded me of all the times that Trump either talked about uh, or implicitly communicated that he was so bored by the technical details. Why is this an aspect of the autocrats playbook? Because the, the autocrats need to demean, um, criticize, undermine the perception of uh, data, of information, of uh, uh, points of view that are based on evidence. And so you need to, um, to go all out against scientists, experts, uh, journalists, those that manage and use and have data, have evidence. Those are a threat to their narrative because they need to have a clean, open space in which they can say all the lies they want and not be questioned by uh, uncomfortable data and, and evidence. I just did an interview with a professor of sort of Canadian politics, and we talked about the differences between the United States and Canada. And there are so many similarities, and we really share the same, almost entirely the same language, and we share 80-something percent of the same media. And even the decisions that the two countries have made you know, Canada is 80% fully vaxxed and the United States is about 70%. So it's not so different. And yet the countries really are different. I've been trying to get at what is the special sauce that the Canadians have that the Americans don't. And what he said is something like, we have a sense of national identity that is just almost allergic to extremism and a fringe mentality. And the United States is quite the opposite. So I don't know if that's the character of the people. I don't know if that's how government was set up. I don't know if that's something about we, uh, the United States doesn't regulate technology almost at all. And Canada does a little bit. I don't know what it is, but it has big practical differences. Go tell that to the truckers in Ottawa. I know, but they're extremely impo- unpopular in Canada, whereas those same people and, would be popular and, in Alabama. <laughs> of course, and, but I am just um, mentioning because it's a provocation because uh, I, 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 I'm fascinated by that and, and saddened and worried because uh, it, it, it encapsulates all that is bad, you know, and... and uh, I was taken aback also by a recent editorial by the New York Times about the, you know, what, what happened in, 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 in Canada with the truckers and all that. And the central message of that is that we, you need to listen to these people's complaints. Well, how can one be against that? Of course, you have to listen to their complaints and find ways of integrating and dealing with their uh, problems and all that. But at the same time, you cannot, in that article, there was no mention about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. about breaking the laws you know you have to dev- I, I understand that this is a just a, a state a way of saying i'm here i'm hurting i need help i don't like the way you're treating me and therefore i'm going to block one of your main cities i understand that this is a is, is a way of attracting attention to a, a real human tragic problem 
But at the, at the same time, the answer cannot be, don't worry about the rule of law. You know, uh, you, you are breaking the laws, you're blocking the city, uh, but don't worry because you, you know, you, you're hurting. Right. That, that is, a, I am I'm very uneasy, uneasy with that. But then what do we do about Black Lives Matter protesters who were blocking things and breaking the rule of law, but the elites were arguing that much more latitude should have been given to them? That's where you need democracy. That's, that problem is solved by, uh, by democracy. You, of course, Black Lives Matter need to have the option of protesting and getting in the streets and marching, all of that, but within the rule of law. The moment you start uh, picking and choosing uh, what aspects of your constitution, of your rules, of your laws uh, apply to whom, your democracy is malfunctioning. I read your book as a survey of the autocrats of the world. I a comparative survey. I found them interesting. But of course, I couldn't not do this as an American, finding parallels to my country. And then I came across the part about Italy under Berlusconi. And there were, and it struck me because I said, ooh, I think the United States might be in this exact position. Berlusconi didn't have uninterrupted rule. There were pauses and there were center-left governments during a couple points of Berlusconi's rule. But you know what? I, I know you know what. They didn't do anything. They couldn't even figure out a way to regulate Tylenol sales and gas stations. Do you think the United States might be in such a period that we are threatened by a long rule? of an autocrat or this autocrat, and right now we might just be in the uh, exception to that rule, but because it's not a very robust exception, let's not expect that it will go on for too long? I am extremely worried about the next presidential election um, because that can be a defining election, not in the sense that you have candidate A that has, uh, you know, good things and bad things and candidate B, and then you make your own choice of the balance of goods and bad things and you pick a candidate. That's the way we think democracy works. The problem here is that you may have a candidate that you can assess in its strengths and weaknesses, but the other candidate is undermining, is threatening your democracy. He's promising you that if elected, so he will do certain things that are clearly not legal. Uh, or that are very, very close uh, uh, to the limits uh, that should not be trespassed. So, um, and again, I think a lot of this is happening stealthily. Um, their efforts, for example, of uh, influencing and taking control of state legislatures and the uh, logistics of, of voting, uh, I think is that is one of the, the, the things that, you know, who cares about that? Who knows about that? We have lives to live and children to raise and jobs to do. So who has the time to really understand what are the minute uh, logistical decisions that come with the transparent elections and counting the votes? And so voting suppression and, 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 and manipulating the results, all of that is happening and, uh, and, and, and requires uh, very uh, careful attention that I don't think I think there is concern about that, but I think there should be alarm. Um, the, the integrity of elections has to be placed at the top of the priorities of this nation. The last question I have is, what are you most optimistic about? Or what's the most optimistic macro trend that you've seen in the last decade or so? The instinct towards freedom. Freedom and humanity is wired for freedom. Humanity, uh, you know, of course, uh, freedom without anything to eat. 
and doesn't bode well for democracy or freedom with too much corruption and justice marginalization. But the propensity for freedom, the, the inst instinct for freedom, I think it's very important and it uh, has been with us and will continue to be with us. Moises Naim is the former editor of Foreign Policy and a Venezuela's trade minister, and he was executive director of the World Bank. His new book is The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mike. And that is it for the Saturday show. I'll talk to you again on Monday. The producers were Corey Wara, our assistant producer, Joel Patterson, our senior producer, and Michelle Pesca is, of course, in charge of all, all Oblast activities. Umpru depru dupru. I don't know if I say that on Saturday, but I'm just going to say it now. Thanks. <laughs>